Listen for God's word from our psalmist, Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Then in verse 5, O God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Then in verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. With your faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. And then in verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. This month we're taking a sampling of the Psalms looking for insight and wisdom for living as we're enduring these days of polarization and pandemic. This month we began in Psalm 1. I entitled a prayer of faith and we looked at how the Psalms begin out of faith, expressing their love of God and looking for God, trusting in God. Then we looked at Psalm 23 last week, that psalm of comfort and peace, even though we recognize that the psalmist, as they wrote it, maybe were still in the midst of struggles and yet looking toward God for help. Today, we look at Psalm 69. I've entitled a prayer for deliverance. A prayer for deliverance. It seems to me that it captures that experience that we all have from time to time where we are in such a crisis that we cry out to God for help. We realize sometimes our problems are bigger than we can handle on our own and we look for divine help. You can hear it in the very first verse of this psalm as we read it. It reads like this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. You can almost hear the panic in the psalmist's voice as they write that they are being swept away or overwhelmed by water. It made me think of my own experience with water. I learned to swim at a young age. I have been comfortable in water for as long as I can remember. During my teen years, I took a series of life-saving or water safety courses. And the one you had to pass to get certified as a lifeguard, which I wanted to do as a teenager, you had to do some one-on-one -on -one water rescue. That is, there was a person out in the water that was flailing around as if they were drowning. You had to go from the lifeguard station, swim out to the person, and either calm them down and help them get back to the water, or if they wouldn't calm down, which was often the case, you had to figure out how to get them back safely. One of the first things they taught us was swimming out to a person who was drowning or thinks they're drowning means they are a person in panic mode. And what often happens if someone swims by them or gets close to them, they jump on top of that person to get up out of the water. But of course, it just pushes the other person under. So they said in our training, if you're going to a person, if you're going to speak to them face to face, you have to keep your distance because they're going to try to lunge on top of you. If you can't help them, 
to calming them down, then you have to take control of their body. You don't want to do that going in face to face because they're going to try to climb on top of you. So they taught us either to go underwater and swim under them and come up behind them or go underwater and go to their knees and you take their knees and turn the whole body. So then you can throw your arm around them, put their body on top of yours and swim to shore. In drastic cases, they said sometimes you have to grab a person by the hair on their head and pull their head back. Put your elbow in between their shoulder blades, pop them up out of the water and keep them there as you swim side stroke to get them back to safety. A person who's drowning doesn't mean to be of harm to someone else, but sometimes, most of the time, that's what's going to happen if the lifeguard is not ready. They taught us the person drowning cannot be counted on to be somebody composed or rational at that point, right? You have to be ready to rescue and save them, to take control of the situation. As I put in the outline, the lifeguard has to be the one you can count on to bring everybody out alive. The psalmist is looking for that kind of help today from God. Listen again to those first couple of verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. You get this sense that they are out of control. Their situation is out of control. They need some help. Maybe this person had really been in some kind of flood. Yet we see the metaphorical sense of this when next the author turns to confession it's in verse 5 oh god you know my folly the wrongs i have done are not hidden from you confession is an important part of the Christian life. We find it over and over in the Psalms. It's still part of the pattern of worship. Where we begin with gathering or call to worship or an invitation, but then we have prayers that include confession. You can hear it most clearly probably in our service of Holy Communion. I want to read to you the prayer of confession after a brief invitation to the communion service. This is our official prayer of confession merciful God we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart we have failed to be an obedient church we have not done your will we have broken your law we have rebelled against your love we have not loved our neighbors and we've not heard the cry of the needy forgive us we pray Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Those are some pretty strong indictments, some pretty strong statements of how we have fallen short. So many people, when first time they read a prayer of confession like this, kind of bristle, thinking, wait a minute, I love my neighbor. I just helped somebody in need the other day. I can remember as a teenager, when I first heard these prayers of communion, back then one of them said, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And I thought, what have I done? I've given my whole life to Christ. 
I don't think I've rebelled against God this week. I'm a good kid. But then I learn more about how the worship service flows and this pattern of confession. It's not just for me as an individual. We're making confession on behalf of all of humanity or on behalf of the whole church. When we realize that confession for us is as a whole community of faith, it's not only for me as an individual or not only for Boston Avenue as a church even, but for the whole Christian community, the whole church through the ages and around the world. We are confessing that we know that we have fallen short. Oh, maybe we can think of some things individually, but we're saying we can look at humanity. We can look at the world and know that we have fallen short of what God intended. We have to think beyond ourselves as individuals when we're making confession. Oh, we might want or need to make individual confession, but when we say these prayers in worship, in corporate worship, we're saying something much bigger we're saying we can look at the world and see it is not what God has imagined. Surely this is not what God has imagined for the world at its best. Some things have gone wrong. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our, need, our neighbors and we've not heard the cry of the needy. It's a prayer of confession. And what Christians have said throughout history is that we recognize that confession comes before proclamation or proclaiming of the good news. That once we've recognized our need, we do better in terms of hearing insights and the import of the good news proclaimed to us. And yet, confession is hard work. We don't like to look at our flaws and failings. For example, it's hard for white people to talk about white privilege, or as we said in the sermon last week, maybe we understand it better if we say white privilege. But think about churches, just as an example. We can think of Boston Avenue Church we love our church. It's a great church. It's done magnificent things in our community and given to causes on behalf of Christ around the world. And yet I think it's time we grapple with our whole legacy. Remembering that Boston Avenue Church was founded by what was called the Methodist Episcopal Church South. It came from a time back in the 1800s when the church in America, the Methodist church, split between North and South, those who would abide slavery and those who would not. And we were part of the church South, partly geographically, but nonetheless, the part that said we'll abide slavery. We can live with that. We can live with the degradation of a whole population based on the difference in skin color. We can live with humiliating, torturing, abusing, tearing families asunder. We can live with that. Sometimes we have to grapple with difficult parts of our legacy. And it's helpful to be able to do confession. 
But it's not just Boston Avenue Church. Think of Southern Methodist University or the Southern Baptist Convention. All those names come from a time where we split over whether or not we could abide slavery. Those of us who are white Christians have enjoyed the fruit of slavery, even if we never had anybody in our family who owned slaves. We've got to recognize the whole economy of the South was built on this institution of slavery that even the Christian churches said we can abide. And much of the wealth that built these great institutions was gathered through an institution that I think we can all agree now was despicable and certainly would fit the criteria if we read those lines from the prayer of confession where we have not loved our neighbor and we've rebelled against God's love and we have not been an obedient church. Confession is saying out loud that we know it and we know that God knows it. Confession is good for the soul even when it's difficult and Christians through the ages have said it's important to do good confession if we want to hear the fullness of the gospel. Now hear me. It is not saying that you are a bad person. It's saying that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. That we all are born into circumstances beyond our control where so many things are already happening. We step into a stream that's already flowing. But it can be really important to pause long enough to look at the ramifications of our place in the story and to confess that we see it, we know it, and we know that God knows it. And therefore, we all stand in the need of God's help. The psalmist turns to that very place in the 13th verse. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. We recognize our need and we turn toward God. The psalmist goes on to say, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. And all of a sudden, we realize that the tone of this psalm has changed. The psalmist doesn't sound panicked anymore. The psalmist has opened himself to God and is now waiting for God to help, for God to answer. It made me think of the, maybe the best-known theologian from Oklahoma. You remember his name? Maybe not the one you're thinking of. I'm thinking of Garth Brooks. Garth has a song called Unanswered Prayers where he tells a story of after he was married and an adult going back to a high school football game in his hometown and running into his old flame. And he said, oh man, the memories came flooding back. And he says, I remember as a teenager... I prayed and prayed to God and said, if only you would 
give me her if you would make her my wife. I'll never ask you for anything ever again. And he said, now standing there talking to her with my wife, realizing we have almost nothing in common. I thank God for unanswered prayers. He goes into the chorus singing, sometimes I thank God. And he's playing his guitar, sort of an old country talking, singing ballad for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Cue the steel guitar. Wah, wah, wah. Make it a country song. Dun, dun, dun. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers because sometimes the greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. If we had time, I bet we all could tell a similar story of something that we were fervent about and were praying to God about that did not come to pass only for us to realize later, as Garth says in the song, maybe God does know what God is doing. The psalmist moves from panic to calm and then moves from there into confidence in God. You hear it as you read through the song that finally the psalmist is praising God. He has confidence in God. He's proclaiming to others that he is sure that God hears our prayers and revives our souls. The song models a path to God from fear and panic to calm and confidence. It could be a model for us of discipleship, of how we can move closer to God even during a pandemic. I think it's something worth thinking about. Amen. And thanks be to God.